Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everybody. This is Mike McKinnon with the Anesthesia Deconstructed Podcast. I'd like to welcome Teresa Sanzio, a lawyer here in Arizona and a registered nurse who's been working representing healthcare professionals for 22 years. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Teresa. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, Mike. Pre- I appreciate the um, invitation. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about your background as an RN uh, and then how you became interested in law, which are quite different professions, and uh, how, how you got to make that career change. Sure. So I have been a registered nurse now for almost 40 years, and I started out in the cardiovascular intensive care unit and then moved into the emergency department and um, where I worked for probably about 10 years or so, give or take. And then I uh, became involved in compliance and uh, then went on to do um, legal nurse consulting work, working for medical malpractice defense law firms in the Valley. And so that was pretty much my segue into pursuing my um, law degree because I found that I was doing a lot of the legal type work anyway. And so I figured it would just make more sense for me to become a lawyer. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I, I started doing last year, started doing legal uh, consulting work uh, for APRN stuff. And it is extraordinarily interesting. I can definitely see how that would get you more and more interested in law as a general rule. Yeah. And what was that process of law school like for you? You know, you're now an established professional as a registered nurse trying to go back to law school. It sounds like it could be a bit of a challenge. Well, um, it was from the standpoint that I went back to law school as a single parent. So I had um, really wanted to start my law process a lot sooner than I did, but the way that I structured it was to wait until both of my children were in school so that we can all go to school together at the same time. So that was probably more the challenging part than uh, the school because I really love to learn and, um, you know, I enjoy going to school and would continue going to school if, you know, if I had the time now. But, um, the difference, just like nursing in law school, is that in the real world, things are very different than in school. So, But it was time-consuming, it was challenging, and it was worth every uh, every 
minute I spent in law school. So you're really happy with the decision that you made to do it? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, that's excellent. That's that's how you want to feel about those big changes. So tell me a little bit more about the legal practice that you've had and what you're sort of specializing in, the ty- like, like the typical cases that you might take on as a lawyer here in Arizona. Sure. So um, as I said, I may have said before that I started out uh, working as a legal nurse consultant in um, medical malpractice defense, and immediately upon graduation from law school and passing the bar exam, I began working in a medical malpractice defense firm and um, eventually went out on my own and opened up my own practice. And I specialized in what we call administrative law or regulatory law because the the focus of my practice in representing licensed healthcare professionals falls under that hospice. So it's regulatory work, um, for example, the medical board, the nursing board, the dental board, all of those are state agencies um, or go administrative law. So what I do um, primarily is represent those uh, licensed professionals who receive complaints against their licenses and they need to have representation um, to help defend um, defend them and work through the process of um, the investigation and the ultimate resolution of the case. So in addition to complaints, I work with uh, applicants, um, those who are those who want to be licensed, and they may have some glitches in their background and may need some assistance with um, getting a, a license to begin with or maybe coming in from another jurisdiction and have some background glitches and need assistance with the application process. Um, obviously, with disciplinary proceedings, and um, that would include the nursing board investigation or the whatever board investigation is the disciplinary proceeding and then ultimately administrative hearings and if necessary, appeal um, appeals to the appellate court if the uh, final administrative decision isn't quite right for a variety of different reasons. It's definitely quite the process to go through all of that. I'm sure it takes an incredible amount of preparation, both obviously on your client side, but particularly on yours. I would assume that's true, correct? Oh, that is very true. Yep. That, that is very, very true. And you're representing more than just nurses. You're representing anyone in regulatory board situations, whether they be podiatrists, dentists, physicians, and that's anywhere in Arizona. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Anyone, um, any licensed healthcare provider, um, behavioral health, dental, psychology, medical, uh, yes, o- occupational therapy, physical therapy, on and on. All right. And then over this time, I mean, 22 years is a long time to do anything. So you get to see a lot of interesting things. I know I have as a nurse and then a CRNA, and I'm sure you have both as a nurse and in your legal career. In this legal career process, it's 22 years. I'm sure you've had some cases that really kind of stood out to you um, as, as in, in one way or another. What ones would you, would you say stand out the most when you look back? Well, there are several, um, but I think that the cases that seem to be most problematic and stand out the most for me are those that involve summary suspension and revocation of a license. And uh, those are hugely problematic. 
Um, they happen relatively quickly if there's a basis for the summary suspension. In other words, there's an imminent risk of harm to the public, and the board feels that they have to take an emergency action, which then affords the licensee a very uh, statutorily short period of time to request a hearing. Um, usually, those hearings are with the idea of revoking the license. So, anytime, uh, anytime a nursing um, license or any license for that matter is going to be revoked. Those are very important and challenging cases. Um, some of the other challenging cases probably specific to uh, nursing are those in the, in the practice area itself are probably those involving nurses that work in the mental health facilities and who are subject to abuse by patients. Those can be challenging. Um, the sexual misconduct cases are some that also stand out. Um, and I think maybe on a, on a, um, on a, on a more kind of a different perspective where I come from in defending the cases, sometimes a challenging case is not one that the fact pattern so much matters um, as the resolution of the case. So let me try to explain that a little bit differently. A, a nurse who violates the Nurse Practice Act and has serious practice issues or concerning practice issues um, will likely be placed on probation or some form of monitoring, and those could be pretty straightforward. Where it gets challenging in representing the nurses is when the cases are such that there is a distinction between a non-disciplinary action versus a disciplinary action for an isolated one-time violation of the Nurse Practice Act because discipline on a license has impact for the professional down the road or even at the moment. So those become a little bit more challenging because you're you're at a fine line between a non-discipline and a discipline, um, if that makes any sense. Because technically, there's going to be a violation of the Nurse Practice Act. I mean, we can find that every day, probably with everyone at any given time. So there's a lot that goes into that the difference between what is a non-disciplinary action or a discipline for that nurse on the license. Sure. There's a lot of gray there, it seems. And and then the decision is made on that regulatory board side as to whether, what, you know, what level it deserves at that point. And it, it seems to me that those decisions um, are often made sometimes in absence of a lot of facts. And it's got to be really difficult on those that go through that process uh, as well. Uh, yes, uh, the nurse, um, and I'm going to use nurse now since we're, you know, our target audience is nurses, but any licensed healthcare professional um, is subject to an investigation that goes forward whether the licensee participates in that investigation or not, or whether the licensee uh, has the opportunity to learn about all of the facts in the case to defend him or herself 
and uh, and sometimes they do not, the licensee does not participate in the investigation or learn of all the facts, and that could be detrimental to the, to the licensee. Right, so then they don't even really know what's going on, or maybe they just think it's no big deal and don't go through the process. It puts them at some significant risk. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And from your perspective with dealing with all the different regulatory boards that we talked about, have you noticed a big difference between how they all process these claims and these investigations, or are they all generally following a similar set of rules? Um, well, there are, um, there are differences among the boards. Um, some boards are a little bit more practitioner friendly and understanding of you know, the real world of a practitioner and others tend to be more on the punitive side. And um, so it varies. And, you know, you take the, the licensee and the facts as you have them. I mean, sometimes there there is egregious conduct that needs to be dealt with. So um, how they're handled is it varies. Um, some are a little bit more punitive than others. And I'm sure that varies even within a regulatory body. Every time the, the board turns over, new pe- boards, more new people on it, I would assume. Yeah, I think so. I think that the turnover on the board is, um, it could be problematic initially because there's a, there's a pretty steep learning curve um, for the new board members and um yeah, they have to they have to learn a lot, mostly process, but also uh, get accustomed to how things, you know, the history of the board and how the board typically decides cases with similar fact patterns. If yeah, that, de- does that make sense? It does. And it definitely seems like, you know, in their defense, it's it's definitely seems like a difficult place to be trying to decide essentially to some degree, depending on the nature of the complaint, you know, the fate of the other person on the other side to, for whom there will be potentially real life financial crisis, you know, outcomes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes, um, you know, sometimes the um, decisions that the board makes are not always consistent from one licensee to another, which could be problematic. Right. That seems, I mean, to some degree, that almost seems like a basis for challenging it later. It could be. Mm-hmm. It could be. It is a definitely interesting process. And I know you do a lot of work, uh, good work here in Arizona, defending people who have these, these complaints um, from every type of board. What is your advice for people who get this letter of complaint from their board? Um, do they all need legal representation right away? Is it is it just that straightforward, or are there different levels of of whether or not they need it or what they need? Well, you're speaking to a lawyer who does <laughs> this kind of work, <laughs> and so I would say that when a licensee receives a letter um, letting them know that a complaint has been filed, that they should retain counsel, and I say they should retain an attorney, but not just any attorney. They should really get someone who has specific experience with working with the agency um, and doing this type of work. Um, This is not like 
civil litigation and it's not like criminal litigation. It's, it's its own little breed, if you will. And um, there are different rules that apply in an administrative proceeding. So the attorney needs to be familiar with regulatory or administrative um, um, administrative law. So first of all, um, the person who receives a letter, a complaint letter, they don't know the process and they don't know what's going to happen. So just that knowledge alone of what is within the boundaries of what the board can do in its investigation um, is something that typically licensees are not aware of. Um, the other thing is having an understanding of the agency and the players and knowing, you know, knowing who you're dealing with when when a, a case is assigned to a certain investigator and how that investigator is going to conduct the investigation and knowing the information that they're going to glean and want and subpoena and how they're going to go about processing that. And um, also, it's important to know what the board is going to do with matters. I mean, for the most part, um, you know, I have an understanding of what the board may or may not likely do in certain cases. I can't guarantee an outcome or I can't guarantee what the board is ever going to do. But I've been doing this enough to know, you know, the significance of certain conduct versus the insignificance of other conduct. Um, and of course, you know, just having a licensee prepared and what goes into uh, defending a case and assisting the licensee with the, with the entire process and um, the allegations and the facts and all of those things. Does that all make sense? It does. I mean, it, it, it has to be when someone gets a letter stating there's a complaint against their license, which is generally pretty uh, vague, it's got to be a very emotional time for those individuals. And of course, any, any person, whether they're physicians or nurses or psychologists, doesn't matter, you know, their immediate feeling is probably a defensive one. And then they know nothing about the process because a nurse may never have, or a physician may never have a complaint their whole careers, or they may have one complaint, or they don't know anyone who's ever had a complaint. So the process mm -hmm. is complicated, yet you've seen thousands and thousands of them. So you know the process and how things generally will go, which is, I imagine, a very huge um, calming factor on the individuals once they call you and you explain it all to them. Yeah, I hope so. And I think it is. I mean, I, I, I think that the licensees are just grateful to have somebody in their corner and somebody advocating on their behalf. And I think that, you know, the, the point that you made, Mike, is, is absolutely spot on because if, when a licensee receives a complaint, they're, um, this is a question. They, they automatically, they're very emotional and very defensive because this is an attack on, we know as nurses, this is who we are. This is our, our, this is our identity, if you will. And the, the, the big concern with these types of, of complaints and issues is that I, I guess the biggest probably misconception for most licensees is the belief that the, the board, the regulatory agency is there for the licensee's benefit because they issue the licenses. But the fact is, is that the board is 
their purpose and their mission is to protect the public. And so they're not in, they're not the advocate for the licensee. And I think that once a licensee understands that, they, then they can better understand that they're not there to help you out with this investigation. They're really looking for ways to establish whether you're safe and competent to practice. And sometimes they unturn or they try to unturn every stone to get that information. So um, it becomes a huge emotional grind for the nurses and um, they do need someone in their corner. They do need someone to help them through the process and to give them reassurance and to give them the information necessary and most of all have them fully prepared for dealing with the investigators and the investigative interview and that entire process. All right. So they're not there particularly to be a neutral party looking into the complaint. They're looking to see if you violate the, the, the practice act that, that you're talking about at the time. And that could involve a wide range of things, right? Like interviewing everyone you've ever worked with, getting subpoenaing your, your work stuff from wherever you work, all those kind of things are part of that. Right. So let me give you an example. If, um, if there's a complaint that's received, um, what the board is looking for is they're looking for a pattern of misconduct. And so to put this in the most simple of terms, let's say there's a medication error that causes harm to a patient. It's reported to the board and the nurse is under investigation. So the board is going to subpoena medical records of the patient. They're going to subpoena the HR file of the nurse. And then they're going to go back in time for five years and subpoena all places of employment for that nurse um, over a five-year period. And then when they start delving into those records in the HR files five years prior, if they see write-ups for medication errors, or if they see counselings for things, counselings for things that are even unrelated to medication errors, um, maybe counselling for interpersonal skills, or who knows, um, then they start to, then they will compound these things, and they'll stack them, if you will, to establish a pattern of misconduct or a pattern you know, a problem with the nurse. And then that gives them the basis for wanting to put the nurse on probation or monitor that nurse. So even so, if that individual, um, it gets a complaint about something specific, like we mentioned, a drug error that causes harm to a patient, then if they find a pattern of, you know, being, having interpersonal skill problems in their, in their facility, that somehow gets interrelated, even though it's not part of the mm-hmm. complaint? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's yes. interesting. It almost that's seems something like those that we have to, Yeah, that's something that we really do have to work on um, because um, that's one of the concerns that I do have and in, in why the process sometimes takes so long because, you know, I, I don't like to use this word um, but it seems apropos to say that th- it does seem like a witch hunt from time to time. So there's right. something that we probably, somebody needs to maybe look at 
I don't know if it's going to be who or me or whatever, but it's an issue, you know, because I think if a complaint is filed, the complaint needs to be investigated. Um, and, you know, something that happened five years ago or four years ago or three years ago, if an, if an employer didn't find it necessary to report the licensee to the board, then it certainly doesn't really, doesn't seem to matter three, four years down the road that that conduct is now being examined to be disciplined. Right. It seems like a reach to, to put that together. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. Yep. And so when, when that process occurs and they're doing all this investigation, is the, um, is the individual who's under investigation aware that all these subpoenas are happening, that their friends or coworkers are being talked to, or is that all kept relatively confidential? Like, you know, is the complaint confidential? Are those people confidential? How does that work? So if the, if the nurse is represented, um, the attorney is going to inform them this ha- that this may happen and um, that there certain people, certain witnesses may be called by the board to uh, be interviewed by the board. Um, and the nurse, the, the board doesn't share this information with the nurse. So if, let's say, for example, you received a complaint, um, the nursing board isn't going to call you up and say, hey, Mike, I'm going to call Joe and Steve and you know, Debbie and, and uh, talk to them about you. They don't inform you of that. And they don't say, Hey, Mike, I'm going to get all your HR records for the past five years. You know, that, that information doesn't, they don't tell you that. I suppose maybe they assume that you would know that, but not everybody does know that. And it's not just the employment records that they get, by the way, um, just a segue, a sidebar, if you will. They also subpoena DMV records court records, police records. So they have a real good picture of you or any licensee before they ever even meet you face-to-face. Right. So they, they've got everything that there is to know out there um, mm-hmm. from a professional and personal mm-hmm. side pretty much at that mm-hmm. point. That's right. Yes, that's correct. And so we did talk about, you know, you, you know this is an administrative regulatory lawyer, lawyer that someone needs. I mean, that then brings me to the question, how does someone ever find out who is a good lawyer to call? So, you know, if you were to Google tomorrow, you know, lawyers for Board of Medicine or Board of Nursing Complaint, you'd get a whole list of ads that come up with all kinds of individuals. How do you, how does one from the outside looking in decide, how do you find out who is going to do the best job for you? Because obviously, you know, the vast majority of those that get a complaint are ignorant of the entire process, let alone who would be good at helping them? What what advice can you give people? Well, that's a good question. Um, so how people find me um, is at this point in time in my career is pretty much by word of mouth and referral. Um, I am not active on the website. Uh, you know, I don't have a website. I don't need one and I don't want one. So I should, but I don't. <laughs> um, but there is what I would recommend for nurses uh, 
there is an association, and I'm a past president of it. It's called the American Association of Nurse Attorneys. The acronym is TANA, T-A-A-N-A, dot org. And the, um, the American Association of Nurse Attorneys has nurse attorneys like myself in every state. So somebody could find someone like me through TANA. And that would be the that would be my best recommendation. Um, how does that word get out? Oh boy, I don't know. Um, I don't know the answer to that because I I understand the question. How does somebody know? How are they supposed to know what they don't know? You know. Right. And and the other thing too, you couple that with the fact that somebody who receives a complaint doesn't really want that broadcasted, and they're not going to go and tell their colleagues or their peers, hey, I got a complaint filed. And, you know, so that's, it is an, it is a, it's an interesting question and I wish I had a better answer for you. It's tough. I mean, everyone knows, you know, everyone's seen ads on TV. Probably the most famous one was a guy from Maine. I may be an SOB, but I'm your SOB. And you don't know if that guy, is he a great lawyer? You don't know. You know, so then you're trying to find, you'd be trying to find some sort of reviews on the individual. But then, as you know, with the Internet, you never really know what's real and what's not. So it's a it's a I think it's a tough place for someone to try to find, you know, an individual to represent them that will do a good job at what, you know, assumably do a good job for them. It's hard. Yeah. And I think, and I think that that's, I, and here, here's another, maybe uh, another piece, uh, another suggestion. Um, one of the places that I do advertise is in the regulatory journal, the um, Arizona regulatory journal. I have a small ad in there. I've been advertising in there for forever, it seems. And um one of the things that I would suggest anybody do who's looking for a lawyer, if you have not received a referral from someone that you trust and respect, um, I would call and do due diligence in speaking to the lawyers and interviewing them on the phone and asking questions. Because now you have a wealth of information, hopefully you do from this podcast, where you can glean their experience and how they work with the, you know, with whatever board, um, your, you know, the, the licensee is before. And, um, it really boils down to if they do have the experience, I think you'll be able to tell and really who you feel, who you have a fit with, if that makes sense. You know, sometimes you can just sense this person really cares. This person is passionate about what she does. Um, I think that that's me because I've, you know, I really do have a huge special place in my heart for nurses and that's because I'm a nurse. So I really want to make sure that nurses are protected and they don't get um, abused. Right. And now one question that um, I know a number of people have, have asked me and I just don't know the answer, you know, I think there's an assumption um, by a lot of people who get a complaint that if they were to hire a lawyer when they walk in, that may generate an acrimonious relationship with the regulatory board and the investigators. Oh, you've hired a lawyer, you must be guilty. That kind of a thing. Have you have you noticed anything like that in your 22 no. years? Yeah. No. So, so that's Mm-mm. not how it's taken nope. at all. It's just a general right, and most people probably consider getting a lawyer at some point. Yeah, I don't know how how that rumor started, but that's not been my experience. And, 
Um, I don't think that having a lawyer makes you more or less guilty of anything. Um, I think a person who hires a lawyer is a smart person because they um, know that there's risks of not having a lawyer. Right. And so that segues into the next question. What are the risks of not having a lawyer? What have you seen? Well, you know, obviously a person who is unrepresented doesn't know really how to present their case in in the best light possible because sometimes a licensee might think um, what they're saying is helpful or useful, but it turns out to be harmful to them. And that's the last thing in the world you want to have happen to a licensee. They have enough to deal with. And if they, you know, if they're thinking they're doing themselves a favor when they're not. So you want to be able to, you want someone to represent you who, you know, someone experienced who's going to show you in the best light possible. Um, And again, I think we talked about this earlier, Mike, that probably one of the biggest risks of not being represented is not knowing the process and, you know, not knowing the various timeframes, making, um, you know, being sucked into things that you, um, you don't have to. Like, for example, a nurse is required to submit a written response to the investigative questionnaire, but they're not required to submit to an investigative interview. And sometimes a lawyer may make that determination as to whether the licensee is suited for an interview or not. Sometimes right. they're not. So those are just little things, you know, as things come up that you, you know, one of the things that I, I dread more than anything is when somebody submits their response to a questionnaire without the assistance of a lawyer and then having a lawyer come on board or having myself come on board afterwards and try to undo what was already done. And once it's done and once it's said and once it's out there, you just can't undo it. So... Absolutely. So what then, so someone gets a, gets a complaint, they call your office and they retain you. Um, and so then what, what happens, what occurs from that point on what, what should someone expect is going to happen and how long these kind of complaints can take? Well, the process is usually very slow and it could be very protracted and complains that the board are triaged. So they're going to process the cases that are more of a high priority, high risk than something that's not. So um, ordinarily the, the investigation can take upward to a year and um, the process is very much like we talked about the board, the complaint is filed and the board will begin its investigation by subpoenaing um, employment information, medical records, um, the, uh, you know, all the other records that we discussed. And, um, and they, they start the investigation and until they have all the documents, they usually don't contact the licensee for an interview until they're ready to go with reviewing everything so that they can, you know, question the nurse and question the licensee. So what typically happens for a nurse 
is complaints are usually generated by a facility. And, um, you know, that, that seems to be more the rule than the exception. Whereas the advanced practice nurse, um, the, the complaints are typically generated by patients. So, you know, it's a lot of them do have independent practice. And so there's no, um, you know, supervisor to submit complaints. Right. So those complaints may be processed a little bit faster because they can get patient records and they can subpoena the patient records directly from the nurse practitioner. Right. So that's, um, that's another interesting thing. So anyway, the board will do, the board will conduct its interviews of the witnesses and then um, they'll complete that process. And then at some point they will inform the nurse that their case is ready to go to the board. Um, I don't know whether they invite nurses to review the file. Those that are not represented may not know that they can go to the board and review the file. Um, So that's another thing. You know, the nurse wouldn't know. The nurse doesn't know what the nurse doesn't know, but every nurse is, is allowed to go and review the file in, in the, at the nursing board. They can't request a copy of it because the board won't provide a copy of it until the case is in litigation, but they have the right to go and look at the file. Right. And I don't think that the board staff inform a licensee that they can do that. So um, that's what I do with my clients. We go and look at the file and then make a decision as to the appropriateness of an interview or not. And then, and then the so progress of that it, interview. Yeah, and then so at that point it gets you know goes on the board agenda, and then the board will make a decision about basically the board the board decision at that very first board meeting is a probable cause um, board meeting. So they determine if there's a basis for discipline or not. And if there is a discipline, they offer the nurse a consent agreement. The nurse doesn't have to accept it. The nurse can challenge it. They can request a hearing. They can request a settlement conference. So technically, that's really the beginning of the uh, of the process, if you will. Oh, sorry. With that administrative conference, if they you know, they get it, they're offered a consent agreement, they don't agree to it, is that then they show up for another board meeting and have another discussion, or is that when they head to the administrative law judge review? Well, there's actually a step in between. Um, they can request a settlement conference before the hearing before the administrative law judge. So... So if they if a nurse is offered a consent agreement and they don't want to accept it, then their case will be transferred to the hearing department. And once the case is in the hearing department, that's when, you know, we would try to settle the case or it go a to a hearing. It is a process. And, and during that time... There's real implications, even if even if it was to come out at the end of the process that, oh, you know, this is this is either dismissed or maybe you get a letter of concern, which is almost effectively dismissal. You have not violated the Nurse Practice Act. Any of those things happen. It doesn't in that process. I'm sure the you 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 find a lot of the applica- you know a lot of your the people you're defending are are nervous, they're concerned, they're worried, they don't know what's going on, and then they're subject to having to disclose these um, in-process investigations to both if they're an APRN, their credentialing when their credentialing comes up, or a new facility uh, for an RN when they take a new job, all those things cause, I'm sure, stress. 
Absolutely. I mean, the problem is that, you know, one of the, one of my biggest pet peeves uh, is the time it takes to process these complaints from, from beginning to end. And because the statutes in the nurse practice act uh, do not have a, a limitation. In other words, there's no statute of limitations. Um, these things don't, can go on for a long time. And all the while, the, this is a huge cloud over the nurse, the licensee's head, for all the reasons that you pointed out, particularly with APs. It's not so bad. I, I think the APs have it worse than the RNs because um, the application questions are a little bit more vague for an RN license, and, and not all questions are the same. Um, if a question, for example, says, has your license ever been disciplined, you know, you while it's under investigation, you're certainly able to answer that question, no. But if the question is such that they ask if your license has ever been under investigation, and it's under investigation, then you have to answer that, yes. So... Um, that becomes problematic for the nurse, um, for the advanced, and particularly for the advanced practice nurse with primarily credentialing and getting insurance coverage, which they need to practice. Right, because that's effectively punitive, even if the outcome is not punitive. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is absolutely correct. So when you look back at some of the some of the, you know, these cases um, that you've had, what are some of the mistakes you've had some clients make either you know, they retained you too late and then you found out about what they did. Like you mentioned the, uh, uh, replying on the investigative questionnaire, uh, during the process, what sort of things have you seen that they've done? Well, um, one of the, uh, a lot of times, well, let me strike that. Not, not really a lot of times, but certainly a handful of times I have had to play cleanup from the work of, you know, other, another person representing a licensee. And so that becomes a problem. Um, the biggest, the biggest issue that I have when I'm dealing with, um, somebody that comes to me that hasn't been represented before they go through the process is they don't see the file. They don't know what's in the file. They're not prepared for the investigative interview and they make statements or say or do things that cost them some challenges down the road that cannot be cleaned up. Right. So basically go getting off topic, talking to them, maybe in your, in your, in the letter that you provide or in an investigative interview, if they didn't retain you and assuming that they're, you know, everyone's there to help them and, and getting mm-hmm. off topic, to, saying things they shouldn't basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Mm-hmm. Even if they're yeah. unrelated, as you mentioned before, you know, everything gets put together in a pattern. So they say something like, well, you know, I didn't mean it that way. That's not exactly mm-hmm. going to come out in their favor. Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, that you, you know, that one has to consider in this whole process is when a nurse is submitting to an investigative interview and they're not represented, the investigator, writes down information in what they and what we call an investigative report and the investigative report goes to the board this is what the board uses to help them make a decision as to what to do with the licensee and so the information 
that's in that investigative report needs to be accurate. And a lot of times, well, I mean, sometimes it's not. Sometimes the investigator might put a spin on it, on the information that slanted negatively toward the licensee. And um, sometimes the licensee doesn't even know to get the investigative report. So they don't even see this in advance of the board meeting. So it's really important to be there to know what what takes place during that interview, because that's pretty key. That that information matters, and it matters how the investigator spins it. Right. And then when I mean, we talked a little bit about the the weaker points or opportunities for improvement in these. Um, you know, regulatory board complaint processes, such as obviously the time is significant. It's punitive for the individual, even when it may be a complaint that gets dismissed. Uh, What other opportunities for improvement do you see in that process from your side as the person defending these cases? So if I could um, wave my magic wand for improvement for the board um, and it's handling of the complaint process, uh, the first thing I would want, and, and it is in the works, um, is a statute of limitations. And um, I've been working with one of the senators and trying to work on some time frames to hone in on the, uh, you know, the time a complaint is received till, till it's processed. And um, I have to get an update on that. Um the we talk of, yeah it's a huge deal um and that was tana and that was um a few years back um wrote a white paper position paper on the statute of limitations uh issue and um so it has been in the works so um we need to kind of revisit that with the people who make decisions in our government um and while while they're looking at these pr- pr- protracted time frames, I think they also need to really um, look at the ex- extensive investigations and how they use prior conduct, like we talked about earlier. And um, I also think that they need some kind of a fast track for cases that are like in the emergency department where you do fast track, you know, right, somebody right. that is a, a quick triage, get it in and out and resolved so that they don't have to have this cloud hanging over their head. If the case is going to be dismissed or if there's going to be a letter of concern or there isn't a serious problem, let's just process it and get it taken care of on short order. There's no reason for those to go to the end of the line while the, you know, critical ones are dealt with. Um, the other thing is I have a problem with the um, eval- the way that evaluations are ordered. Um, the, the board issues interim orders for nurses to submit to or undergo various types of evaluations that are very, very costly. And um, sometimes those evaluations are just not necessary. Um, so I think that those are some areas I think the board could stand to improve its proficiency and operations. Right. And then I'm sure that the pushback against, um, you know, speeding up or fast tracking times is resources. Ultimately, you know, now if uh, you take the board of nursing, for example, if you've got 
I don't know their number, but say you have five investigators, but now everything has to be done within one year or maybe nine months, they're going to have to bring on more people. And I'm sure that's what the pushback is, is money. The pushback is money, but the the pushback to that pushback is you don't need to be doing these extensive investigations. I mean, you know, if the issue is A, investigate A and deal with A. None of the other boards do this. So this is unique to the nursing board. If if there's a complaint filed against the medical board, a doctor, or a PA, they look at the issue, they investigate the issue, they resolve the complaint. I don't think that there are too many other boards that take this length of time to process a complaint than the nursing board. So is is that a part of the nursing board's like policy that they do that? Or is it just how they've traditionally done things and so it gets passed down as new investigators or board members come in? Well, actually, the policy is and the direction of the auditor general is that they're supposed to have these cases work through within a six-month period of time. I don't want to be quoted on this because um, it's been a while since I've looked at the auditor's report, but they're, they're not supposed to take upward of two, three, four, five, six years. That's crazy. Wow. There's complaints and going that long. Yeah, there are. Yeah, last year, I think I have wrapped up my... Last year, I think I ramped up one of my oldest cases, which was from 2012. So um, I I am not tracking those statistics anymore because, you know, some of the cases are just so old. Um, I mean, I've got, uh, I have a pending case now where the complaint was received in 2014. So we're still dealing with that case and it's, 2020. So it's beyond the five-year mark. Wow. So that's a problem, you know, that's a huge problem. Yeah, all the way around, right? Because those Mm -hmm. cases continuing to linger, of course, that backs up other cases because those investigator times are now split with that case that's five plus years old, which it would seem, obviously I don't know the details of all these types of cases, that if something can go five, eight years, or maybe even more than six months or a year, that it's obviously not that big of a deal. Uh, as far as patient safety and safety of the of the community and the citizens of the state, which the regulatory board's involved in, which is, as I understand it, their primary goal is to protect, uh, you know, patients and people. Yeah, that's correct. It's kind of hard to, you know, it begs the question: What is, you know, what is the role? If the role is to protect, and how how do you claim to be protecting when this has been sitting sitting around for? three, four, five, even two years is too long, you know? So, um, yeah. And I think that, you know, I think there are other, you know, proficiency and efficiency matters with the board of nursing that could be improved, um, process wise. Um, I mean, I think that when you hire a, a master's prepared investigator or, you train someone to be an investigator, they can investigate a complaint and they can make recommendations to the board. But one of the things that bogs it down is they have a what they call a peer review process where all of the investigators participate in and provide input to um, what should be done for 
the, you know, for the licensee, even though the investigator was the one who met the licensee interviewed and the licensee reviewed the file, you know, and so that slows things down a lot too. So that's an internal mm -hmm, or, or more than that, because the board has, I mean, the board hears about, the board hears over 200 cases at any given board meeting every other month. That's a lot. That's a lot of that's a lot of stuff. A lot of, of cases to review. A lot of reading for the board members mm-hmm. trying to yeah. sift through all these things. And you mm-hmm. know, I mean, like any of us, you know, it's certainly not specific to them. When you're forced to sit through, and this is, you know, just you know, for the record, these board members are volunteers. You know, they're trying to to add some sort of a, a, a professional. Uh, additional benefit to their profession by serving as a board member. They work full time, most of them. So you get someone yep. who's asked to read, you know, two hundred board complaints in two months. You you may be talking a board complaint may have hundreds of pages. You may be talking thousands of pages to review. How efficient and how how, I mean, how you know thorough can you really be with that little bit of time and that much volume? Well, and I think that that's where. That's where we, when we talked about the investigative report that the investigator puts together, I believe that the board members who are deciding the cases rely very, very heavily on the information that's in the investigative report. And that's why it's critical that that information is correct and accurate and presented properly for the board to render a decision. Because if it's unbalanced, then their decision is going to be wrong. Right. And succinct because it's a lot of volume. Have you noticed talking, you know, you're president of the association, so obviously you've got a national perspective uh, and I'm sure lawyers talk about these things from state to state. Is this a commonality among many states with the boards, you know, these process issues? Yes, I do think that most of the, um, in our research from the statute of limitations, um, there was a handful of states that had a statute of limitations. Um, the majority of the states do not. Um, so, uh, you know, how other, how other states process the complaints, I really can't speak to, uh, how long it takes. But I don't right. think that it's uncommon for these types of complaints to take a long time or That's complaints in general issue. to take long time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And in, in, your, in your time doing all these uh, reviews, either for APRNs, RNs, physicians, whoever, have you seen uh, uh, a progressive or common weaponizing of these complaints against providers? by individuals or facilities. So I guess what I'm saying is, is have you seen a retaliatory board complaint? Basically, has that stuff uh, happened throughout your career where? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That happens because people, once somebody knows that filing a complaint against a licensee, um, once somebody knows how this works, yes, they people do file complaints in retaliation, and that that's common with scorned, you know, exes. Um, it could be with, you know, employees, coworkers, peers. Yeah, that does happen. Yeah, 
So once a complaint is filed, it's very rare that the board will not investigate it. Um, I don't know what the statistics are for the board dismissing uh, complaints outright without them even going through the investigative process. I would imagine that there's some number of those types of situations. Obviously, that would be outside of my knowledge base because I'm dealing with people who have complaints. So, um, but no, that does happen, and and it uh, it's very sad to see something like that happen. It's pretty rough, rough on yeah. the individuals, no. you know, to have to have a complaint against them yeah. that is superfluous or retaliatory, and then to be, you know, mm-hmm. guilty until proven innocent from that process. Yes, yes, and I think that that might be the big takeaway is that the, you know, in this type of a situation, in this type of a process you kind of are considered guilty until you prove your innocence. Right. Which is exactly the opposite of how people would assume the legal process Mm -hmm. would proceed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So have you, would you say that you've noticed, I noticed uh, Arizona, for instance, has the ability to file an online complaint with all the different regulatory agencies. You can do it at the touch of your fingertips on your cell phone, iPhone, uh, all that kind of stuff, anything you want. Um, where there's other states which require you to actually write a formal letter. New York is one of them. Uh, there's no online reg- process to just put in a complaint. Do you think that there's been an uptick in, in these kind of complaints, the, the ones that maybe are not patient-related, uh, where there's a real safety issue because of the access to place them? Um, that is a good question. I don't know that I could answer that question. Um I think maybe somebody from the board might be able to, um, and the reason is because now with, for me, the complaints, all of the complaints are generated online and I only deal with cases where complaints are filed. It's rare that I'm, you know, so I don't, that side is the other side of things and I don't know if there's any change or difference in that. Yeah, you, um, you wonder if like the uh, the ease of submitting a complaint increases the risk of retaliatory complaints being filed. It, it could, and I think that that would be. Uh, I think that that would. First of all, it would somebody would have to determine the retaliatory nature of the complaint. Mm-hmm. So, and and if it is established at the onset and they dismiss it outright, I wouldn't know that information because that would not be a person that I would ever see. Because keep in mind, if a complaint is filed and they dismiss it right at the onset, for whatever reason, they determine to dismiss it, the licensee doesn't even know about the complaint being filed. Right. If it's totally superfluous, I don't like this guy because his hair is brown, they're dismissing Mm -hmm. it before it goes anywhere. And that's the purview, as I understand it, of the executive director in the board of nursing, at least, right? Whoever is making those triage decisions, I, whoever, whatever right. staff she assigned or whoever she assigned to that role, it would be that person. And so, yeah, that would not be something that um, a licensee would ever know about. And so somebody could have filed a complaint against me and they dismissed it and I would never know. Right. So, And then in what ways have you seen complaints impact your clients? What are some of the big hmm. takeaways? So, first of all, um, complaints are, years ago, The com- when a complaint was filed, it used to be publicized. 
But now it's not done that way anymore, thankfully. So if if a complaint is filed against an RN, nobody has any information about that complaint until some decision is made on it when it becomes, you know, under investigation after the board, here's the case, which is a really, really good thing for the nurses because they don't have to disclose that if nobody asks the question because an employer will not be able to find that information on the internet like they used to at one time. Um, so in, in that sense, that's a good thing. Um, the applications um, and the employer, um, the employers may inquire about complaints. So that is um, going to impact a client um, or, or the licensee. And this is hugely more problematic for the NP population because we talked about the credentialing and the insurance issues and the length of time that it takes for these cases to be resolved. So how it impacts anyone with a complaint hanging over their head is there's the emotional toil that it takes. There's the financial toil that it takes. There's possibly credentialing and an insurance um, concerns and considerations, employment considerations. And uh, if a, if there is a disciplinary action taken, um, then that's also going to impact the licensee because it remains, as far as I know, as of today, it's a permanent mark on the license. I have heard some rumor that maybe this is supposed to go away after 10 years, although I'm not I haven't seen anything in writing to support that. So it becomes a permanent blemish on the license, you know, on the licensee, on their license. And so those are, you know, those are, um, those are pretty serious things. And I, and I think we talked earlier about how important it is for nurses to, you know, some nurses, some nurses don't care, but some nurses really do care about their standing and they want to have a clean record. Sure. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, like we, we had touched on just slightly, but there's effectively two options for the board. There's a disciplinary option, which ranges from maybe a letter of concern, which of course is on your license, uh, to anything all the way to probation or losing your license. And then there's below that there's total dismissal, which may happen at the onset of triage or any time all the way up to the end of the process or uh, a letter of concern, which is effectively, basically saying, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't have done this or that, but it wasn't anything that was a violation of the Practice Act, therefore not disciplinary. And those don't exist effectively after it's all finished. Is that correct? Well, a letter of concern is um, is a letter that's put in the board file, but it's not made public. Right. And a letter of concern doesn't always... Um, a letter of concern, there there could be a violation of the Nurse Practice Act and a letter of concern could still be issued, oh, Okay, um, which is the way that it should be. I mean, there should be some kind of a tiered, um, you know, a tiered effect with discipline, if that makes any sense. Right. Some kind of a not jumping right to discipline for one time, you know, a nurse has a 30-year career, she's had a stellar career and then she, you know, has a violation of the nurse practice act and she gets disciplined. 
Well, somebody should probably consider some of the mitigating information like her career, um, maybe some work um, conditions, um, maybe the just culture analysis. All of these things might factor into an event happening. And then to have a mark on your license because of a one-time thing, one-time event, whatever it is, whatever the case may be, is devastating. I mean, something like that, sure, there may be a violation of the Nurse Practice Act, but I mean, how about a letter of concern for have ne- having never had any issues before, and this right. is the first and only time this has happened. And then if something happens again next year or three years from now or whatever, then you can look to the letter of concern and use it in the manner in which it was intended to be used. Right, that makes um, sense. Yeah, right. yeah. And, uh, you know, in the defense of nurses who may in some way violate the nurse practice, although obviously the expectation is that every nurse reads the Nurse Practice Act, just like every employee reads their employee handbook, we all know none of those things generally happen. And so they may violate something minor in the Nurse Practice Act that they're totally unaware of. So does that make them a bad Mm -hmm. person, a dangerous nurse? And I would say no. No, and and a lot of the violations of the Nurse Practice Act don't make nurses dangerous or unsafe to practice. You know, sometimes a majority, sometimes a majority, that doesn't make too much sense. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Violations, um, practice issue violations are almost always remediable, remediatable, fixable, you know. So um, maybe it just requires a little bit more education. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a staffing issue. Who knows? But it's not always the way it appears. I mean, you know, you, we see a lot of stuff with medications not being administered within the hour before or the hour after. You know, well, sometimes it's just not possible to do that because an event occurred on the floor and, you know, they just can't get to it, you know. So things like that are, you know, disruptive to the, I think, the intent behind the uh, the Nurse Practice Act and what it's supposed to be doing. They sure are. And then to the individual who maybe through no fault of their own ended up in that situation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and exactly. The interesting thing is, is that that uh, an RN could be put or your physician could be put in these positions where they may have violations or may end up in complaints for violations of their practice act because of their employer. And yet the employer submits the complaint. And what recourse then is there when a complaint is submitted to that against that individual's license when it was not justified or the employer put them in that situation that, that there's none as I understand it, unless you would decide to go and do a personal lawsuit. Well, in terms of if if the employer um, if the employer were to put a licensee in that situation, that's where you're going to need someone to someone that knows and understands and and could point that out because otherwise it will go untouched. Right. Um, and no, there is really no recourse. I suppose you can file a small claims court for a. a for recovery of attorney fees or something, but I don't think that there's really a, there isn't, there isn't recourse because there is a provision in the nurse practice act that, you know, protects people from filing complaints um, if they're made in good faith. And that's, it's hard to determine, hard to determine good faith. 
Yeah. Yeah, if there's a you know reasonable basis for it, and you know the other thing too is I think that there's some uh, some element of encouraging complaints being filed. You know, if you ever, you know, if if an, a supervisor is in doubt, they call the board, and the board will say, you know, file the complaint. I don't think that they, I don't think that they discuss it, right. and then the board tells them not to do it. So you know, they're always going to be prompted to file a complaint anyway right so to be safe and i can bit. see i can see how yeah. they do that. that's no different than when someone you know calls their their provider's office about something and you know the provider's always at you know the first thing they're going to say if you're really concerned about it go to the emergency room you know they've got mm-hmm. to also protect themselves from you know saying oh don't file a complaint and then down the road that gets that becomes discoverable and um, mm-hmm. there's a real issue I, I can understand why they wouldn't you know, air one way or another on that one. And, so from- and not only that, but there's also, you know, the provision, uh, there's also consideration for the supervisor who doesn't report because they could be on the hook for not reporting. Right. It's a tough position to be in for sure. And then, you know, those people yeah. that may be new in those roles aren't aware, they're a lot more conservative or they're relying on the advice of others, maybe their human resources department or the risk management department, depending on what the complaint might be or the position of the individual licensee. And mm-hmm. they may not always get the best information, but they're always going to get the information that's going to protect the facility and 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 them, I think. Right. You know, right. from any risk. Which is going to be very conservative yeah. information. Exactly. Exactly. Well, this has been a lot of very useful information, I think, for you know all types of licensees about regulatory body complaints. And if you had to leave the listeners with one thing, one important final piece of advice uh, on what they should do or what they need to know about navigating these issues, what would it be? So the the one piece of advice, as much as every person probably hates to do this, the one piece of advice is to know the statutes and the rules that um, govern your practice. Um, that's the Nurse Practice Act. And um, you just have to understand, everybody needs to understand that the regulatory agency's purpose is to protect the public from unsafe and incompetent licensees. And each of these agencies, and certainly the ones that I have been before, take their job and their role very seriously. So it's not that they have anything against the licensees. It's just that their function is different than what the licensee might expect. So if they, if the licensee has an understanding that the boards are not there to protect them, that may help them navigate through the process a little bit more because I always try to explain to my clients that they should try to put the hat, you know, put the shoe on the other foot and try to see things from the board's vantage point. You know, how, how would it be if you were sitting in their shoes determining, you know, competency and safety of, of a licensee of you as a person or the nurse? So I think that knowing the violations of the, you know, what constitutes a violation of the Nurse Practice Act, what constitutes unprofessional conduct is going to be found in the Nurse Practice Act. And I think every, every uh, licensee needs to be familiar with that, with the statutes and the regulations that govern their practice. 
Right. That's definitely true. And I think most are not just because they never think that it's something that's going to happen to them. But ultimately that is probably the most important piece of advice. And I I think that the board of nursing would say the exact same thing or the board of medicine understand the rules under which you have been, you know, provided the privilege to practice because those are the lines that if you draw outside of them are going to get you in trouble. Exactly. And that's what they look to, you know, they have to follow the boards have to follow the same rules and regulations and those statutes and rules are exactly what guide the board in making decisions that they make it, you know, to discipline a licensee. And if you live in Arizona, retain Teresa Sanzio to defend you. <laughs> well, gosh, thanks. Thank you. I could be reached at 602-993-3215. That was my next question. <laughs> How can they get hold of you? Perfect. <laughs> Well, this has been great and it's been a it's been a, a lot of information that, you know, most people who are under regulatory complaints, most people who never probably never see one, they have no idea what this process is. You know, and um, you know, they don't understand how it works, what the rules are, you know, they have a misconception that getting a lawyer means you're guilty. You know, these kind of things, you know, dismissing those things is incredibly important um for both protecting the public but also for protecting the individual from outcomes that right. would, you know, could potentially impact them uh, for, into the foreseeable future for, in some cases, five to eight years for a complaint. Yeah. And, and you know, when you think about it from, from that perspective, really, by processing these complaints sooner, um, I think the board's are doing a much would be doing a much better job in protecting the public because they can take action sooner against somebody who is who's who's maybe not competent or maybe a little bit unsafe. Right, exactly. Get get in there and 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 do what their mission mm-hmm. is by protecting the public. I agree. Well, thank right. you so much, Teresa. This has been awesome. I've definitely enjoyed it and learned a lot. You're welcome, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Absolutely. That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com.